Hi, I'm Jonathan Chen. I'm the co-founder of Lightbox and one of the producers of the HBO Tina documentary about Tina Turner. Hello, my name is Simon Chen. I'm the other co-founder of Lightbox and I'm a producer of Tina, the feature documentary we've just made about Tina Turner. This is interview one, take one. My mother, she used to sit in the window of the kitchen when she was making dinner on Sundays. I used to just watch her. I thought she was so pretty. One day she wasn't in that window. She was never in it again. I wanted her to come for me. And I waited. She never did. And it's all right. You know why? I'm a girl from a cotton field. I put myself above the destruction and the mistakes. And I'm here for you. That is a trailer from the soon-to-be-released HBO original documentary, Tina. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. Today we have an exciting episode as we discuss the life and career of the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner. It is a privilege then to be joined by the Emmy-winning and Oscar-winning producers of the soon-to-be-released Tina Turner documentary, cousins Jonathan and Simon Chin. Jonathan and Simon, welcome to Factual America. I am in LA. Thank you for having us. Um, everything's, everything's good. Looks like life is getting slowly back to normal, and we're excited for the, the film to come out at the end of the month. Okay, excellent. And Simon, how about you? You're in London? I am. I'm in London. Um, yeah, this is the way we roll. Uh, we, we do our business by Zoom these days. Yeah. I saw I, I saw you had an article about working from home last I think that came out in April or something and uh, had a lovely office I will say I, I need to get a home office like that one so the film as you've said films uh, Tina only needs one name it's like a great Brazilian soccer player she only needs to be known as Tina um, Owen Gleiberman from Variety says I went into Tina feeling like I knew this story in my bones but the film kept opening my eyes to new insights new tremors of empathy and new appreciation for what a towering artist Tina Turner is I don't think I could say it better myself that's certainly my impressions uh, premiered at Berlin International Film Festival on March 2nd in the States it's releasing on HBO and be streaming on HBO Max from March 27th uh, drops March 28th in the UK on Sky Documentaries and Now TV, and also available on Altitude.film. And for those of you not in uh, North America and, and Britain, well, uh, stay tuned. It will be coming out soon. And it will be coming out theatrically. Unfortunately, not here in the UK, not for a little while, but uh, just stay tuned for that. Uh, I can imagine it would be amazing on the big screen. I, I've seen it on a on a 15 inch laptop, but it's, uh, and even there it was great. Um, so also we give shout out to the directors, Daniel Lindsay and TJ Martin. And so thanks again so much, Jonathan and Aaron for coming to the podcast. It's an honor to have you. Congra congratulations on this finally being uh, released. And um, my goodness, you guys have quite a filmography, but you must be uh, pretty happy with this result. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, we're thrilled with the film. I mean, it, it was definitely a, you know, these, as, as you may be aware, these, these feature dots, particularly the music ones, can sometimes be a real marathon. Yeah. Uh, you sort of start with a blank, a sort of dauntingly blank sheet of paper. And I guess in, in, in this one in particular, kind of, kind of the, the challenge or the, the, the daunting thing was that just simply there's, this story has been told many times very well. Yeah. Uh, so what can we bring to it that, that will revitalize it, that will offer audiences something that they didn't know, that will mm. frame it in a way that, that, that adds something to, to the narrative uh, that people know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was definitely, that was the, the, big, the big challenge of this film. Um, okay. 
So I'm, I'm glad that you think we achieved that. Yeah, I think you, I definitely think you, you, you achieved it. You definitely pulled it off. I mean, I, I've, we normally ask the people who come on to give a little synopsis of the film. It seems kind of funny to ask that question because we are talking about Tina Turner, but maybe, maybe just so for our listeners and some won't be as uh, uh, familiar with of a certain generation and younger, maybe. Um, what Simon, we'll start off with you. What what is this? What's this film about? Maybe give us a little synopsis. Yeah, of I, mean, Tina. I mean, just just following on from what I'm what I was saying. Everyone knows the the, the contours of uh, the Tina Turner story. It's one of the great music stories of yeah. stories of a performer of, of our of our times it's a, it's a, it's fundamentally a story of, of survival of, yeah. of you know, transcending a difficult life a really difficult life mm. and triumphing in the face of adversity so we know that right but but what makes i think this film a bit different is that we're we're sort of reckoning with something else which is tina turner at the, in the sort of twilight of her of her life, mm. uh, looking back on her life, and coming to terms with her story and and the way yeah. it's been received, and this is something that she's always struggled with. She actually told her story of abuse at the hands of Ike Turner in order not to be defined by it, far from it, but mm. actually to to get away from it. So ultimately, the film is about Tina coming to terms with that's that story and that legacy yeah and and jonathan i think it's as simon's already kind of it's it's, it's talking about is that it's it's kind of hard to believe it. this it's the first time the whole story has been told isn't it i mean i think for some of us who've come up with a certain age um i mean a story has become a myth and i mean that in this one meaning of the word myth you know it's just become legend it's it's there and yet um for a lot of us, we didn't really know the whole story, did we? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think a lot of us knew the the temp poles of the story, um, you know, the the kind of basic structure of her story. But I, I think what Dan and TJ are getting at with this film that that was exciting to us and hopefully will be exciting to audiences is that they're not only interested in the details of the story, but they're also interested in the story of the story. Um, mm. There's a sort of you know, a sort of meta level to the film that I think raises some really interesting philosophical and existential questions about one's legacy and, and one's relationship to one's own story. And, and I think, you know, we were so privileged to be able to, for Tina to sit down, you know, in her 80th year um, and, and start to reflect on uh, her feelings about her own story. And I think that gives the film, uh, I think, a freshness uh, and a point of view that hopefully um, for viewers who, who know the story will, will, will be um, exciting. And for those who know the story less, they'll get the story, but they'll also get the context of the story within Tina's full life. Not going to go into details of the, of the, of the, pl- uh, the film in the sense of, uh, you know, we don't want to do spoiler alerts and well worth uh it's the quickest two hours i i can remember i must say uh, it's that's, that's uh, a compliment i don't know what i've had in a while that's uh uh but what simon what new insights does this film offer up i think tina herself and her kind of engagement with the story of her life in this film does feel unique i haven't seen tina talk in this way about her story and part of that is we interviewed tina in 2018 right so that was pretty much the first thing that we did you know she didn't she didn't want to sit for a very long time you know we Mm. totally got that um she was never going to be the the you know she was never going to sort of be telling her her story in in that form in a sort of very granular way but i think what actually dan and tj got to in that relatively short interview was a sort of the sweetness and the, the modesty and the the dignity and the sort of kind of, i don't want to say ordinariness because she's not ordinary but mm. the kind of the lack of airs and graces that that, that actually Tina Turner has in abundance. And that's, that I think will be surprising to people. You know, she talks in a very sweet way about her relationship with 
with Erwin, her current husband, you know, yeah. talks in a very forgiving way about, about Ike. Yeah. Um, but also we have these tapes that we've, we discovered, these research tapes that one was the, the tape that the interview that Kurt, the research interview that Kurt Loder mm. did with Tina for, for, for his, for their book, I, Tina. And the other was uh, the research interview that a journalist, the journalist who, who kind of broke the, 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 the story of Tina's abuse for People magazine in the early 80s, Carl Arrington mm. did. Uh, and that those tapes also, I think, offer a very, very different side of Tina. They're sort of raw. They were never intended for publication. So it's a very sort of intimate, raw, quite not, not that far from the events she's talking about, quite emotional Tina that you're, that you're hearing. Mm. To, to me, that is the revelation of the film. It's, it's Tina the person, you know, in, in a way you've never heard her before. Well, I think uh, it's something I was going to, you know, ask you about, certainly as we, uh, um, as, as we continue with this conversation. But uh, since you've raised it, I mean, these, these, uh, this People magazine interview, this is, this is a, and, and these research tapes you mentioned, they, they both get, a, they should both get a narration credit, I guess, you know, I mean, they're, they're very, they're very interesting. Um, and so there's this, you know, this People magazine interview from 81, it looms large in her life and it looms large in the, in the film. And I guess, Jonathan, I mean, this was supposed to be once and for all, I tell the story and then I'm done with it. But then that's, that's right. But that's not what happens over the next 40 years, is it? It's not what happened. And the interview was done. It, 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 you know, it was, it was a story. It wasn't front page story. Interestingly, I think Johnny Carson was on, <laughs> on the front of that, that magazine, yeah. uh, which tells you something. I mean, I think Tina was in, you know, she was in a, a transitionary stage of her career. Um, yeah. But she felt that she wanted to get the story out to be rid of it for her own emotional uh, journey. Um, I also want to add, you know, um, one of the things um, that that's sort of revelatory is, is, is Tina's relationship to Buddhism, which 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 I didn't I wasn't aware of how important mm. Buddhism it was in her sort of trajectory of her life, and it's, it's still important to her today. But going back to the People magazine article, yeah, she 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 told the story for the very first time about her and Ike uh, publicly as as a attempt to sort of flush it out of her life in a, in a sort of Buddhist way. Um, and uh, people really um, responded to the story and it started the trajectory of it defining her bigger story. Mm. Um, and uh, from then there was, you know, then, then she wrote the book with Kurt in order to sort of put more flesh on the bones and be done with it. Then Disney bought the rights to the book and made the movie What's Love Got to Do With It, um, uh, which, you know, uh, in, in a very revealing moment in the film uh, at the time of the festival that it aired at, she, she admits that it was too hard for her to watch the film, um, yeah, What's Love yeah. Got to Do With It. Um, and then, of course, you know, the musical uh, in London and in, uh, on Broadway. Um, and in some ways, you know, our film is, is, is the final chapter where she actually talks about all those other iterations of her story um, and um, expresses for the first time, I think, to the public, her feelings about her story. Um, um, so in some ways, the documentary hopefully is, is the end of that story for her. And she can, she can as she says so beautifully, bow out gracefully. Um, you know, um, and has, as Simon said, you know, sort of come to terms now with, with um, her story. And Simon, I mean, I think that's what's, what struck me for those of us who are, you know, I was in high school when she hit it big in sort of the, you know, the 80s. Um, you know, that's, it feels like once you get to sort of what's love got to do with it, that's kind of where the, almost for m many of us in the public, uh, the, that's where the narrative ended. But as, as your film captures and as Jonathan was talking about, there's, there's so much more to it. Um, and things that, I mean, there are some things in this. You said you didn't know, didn't know about the Buddhist element. I do, I do vaguely remember that, but I don't, I don't remember her being a cabaret singer, you know, and, and yeah. 
you know, struggling. That was amazing. You know, a uh, 40-year-old single mom with four sons, try, no alimony, no child support, trying to make ends meet. You know, that's, that, that's amazing. That section also, I agree, does feel revelatory, doesn't it? And actually, it was one of the things that Dan and TJ, the directors, were first really kind of got interested in before actually they'd met Tina. They were sort of just totally fascinated with the sort of the detail of what happened between sort of leaving Ike and her solo success, you know, and when you really kind of get into the detail of that, it's kind of awe-inspiring, isn't it? The, the, yeah. you know, she was really, she had to start from scratch in such a sort of practical way, you know, um, and, and sort of having, you know, having had a real, real status in the music industry, um, to, to do that requires incredible humility to, to sort of go back to the bottom, as it were, and build yourself up from nothing. And just the, the actual dynamics of the emotional aspect of that is, is sort of, it's, it's in a way the most inspiring thing about Tina. And I, mm. I guess my, my observation about her is that she sort of never lost that. I mean, I, mm. I, I think we found her as a person to deal with you know, she has, she has a lot of humility, um, as well as a lot of, you know, the kind of qualities that, that any star has, but she actually has a lot of humility about, about her. Yeah. Because you you say the humility, but yet being able to, even when she's, uh, you know, singing in some lounge, basically in San Francisco, knowing, and, you know, and not making a very good impression on her future manager, Roger Davies, uh, at least in the first uh, session, um, to have that vision to, you know, I mean, we would, most people would laugh at themselves if they came out with things like, I want to be filling football stadiums full of people and, and being the, you know, leading woman of rock and roll. And I want to do this and mm-hmm. that. And you're, you're, as you say, nearly at the bottom. I mean, to know yeah. that you've got the talent and the ability to achieve that and then to pursue it's quite amazing yeah well also especially in the in the face of the odds that were stacked against her let's not forget she was a uh, a black rock and roll singer without her partner at that stage her her, her, her creative partner um because mm. she had run away from him you know not a young woman anymore and i think the film does a great job of presenting the prejudices in the music industry and the higher echelons of the music industry at that time just put that on top of everything you've just said in terms of you know she probably shouldn't have succeeded on paper but there is something about her and certainly her relationship with roger which you mentioned was was key i mean roger was key in in you know helping tina achieve her goal to you know be be as big as the rolling stones but at the time, it, it, it must have seemed like a kind of a crazy dream uh, based on the fact where she was and what she was going to be up against um, uh, in the establishment. The other thing that I'm, I'm always struck by, you know, when I watch the film is, is, you know, what an incredible trailblazer of a performer she was mm. pre her solo success, you know, with Ike, you know, and that's in a way sort of, I guess the other thing, it's not a revelation, but seeing the, the full trajectory of her career as a performer sort of laid out in, in this way is, is in some sense a revelation because, you know, um, I guess, yeah, I mean, she, she was sort of building on that. She was building on something, something very innate, you know, some real innate talent and, and frankly, some, a, a lot of, a huge amount of self-belief and the fact that she was able to sort of have that self-belief and, and, and maintain it after everything that happened to, to her is, yeah, is, is extraordinary. But, but she had it, she never lost it. And I guess she also had something else, which was the, the willingness to graft, you know, the willingness to do the work, you know. She clearly has and had extraordinary coping mechanisms that others yeah. <laughs> in her industry, um, you know, um, who, who have crashed and burned um, don't have. And, and I think, you know, there's something very grounded about Tina that, that comes through when you look at her life in, in, in the totality. You know, she didn't, she didn't go off the rails with 
you know, drugs and alcohol and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and no, and right. grounded is a great word, actually, because in a way it's the key to her, I think, is that yeah. despite the fact that she lives in a mansion on Lake Zurich, <laughs> and, and, you know, which is incredible and, you know, has, has Grammys and whatnot, platinum records coming out of her ears. Yeah. Um, she does, she just she does, she is incredibly grounded and, and very private, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess she's still always, that, I mean, she's that girl from that little town in, uh, in Western Tennessee, you know, I mean, there's something about me. Girl from Nutbush. Nutbush, exactly. Um, <laughs> but yet it still always comes back to this story that just keeps, I hate to use the term, but haunting her, really. I mean, I think the film rightly raises up the stars that her husband even kind of puts in these terms and ter- that she's basically like a soldier who's going through post-traumatic stress disorder every time. And I think you have, you have a great sequence where you're just showing these, you know, she's already made it big, but every interview she goes to, she's made to relive this. Uh, there's a cringing one with, uh, she's next to Mel Gibson and they're, yeah. you know, done yeah. Mad Max and the looks on his face, he can't even oh, disguise the fact that how disgusted he is with the questioning. That is a very telling look on Mel Gibson uh, in that interview for sure, because I think he feels incredibly bad for Tina in that moment yeah. um, and feels that, that, that she's being hijacked in a certain way. And, uh, but look at the grace that she sort of deals with it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, Tina, you know, she deals with, she dealt with those things with grace, but strength. Um, and yeah, it must've been incredibly, incredibly painful to be constantly be pointed towards a part of your life that, that you want to move beyond. But, you know, I think Tina says it and it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because I think, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of women have suffered at the hands of their partners and their husbands um, in in similar ways, and and so, you know, I think she also understands that 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 there is a responsibility to sort of survive and and be an inspiration. But the problem is is that it's very painful for her to do that, and and so that's the that's the real tension, I think, of, of her legacy in a certain way that, that I think in making this film, you know, I'd like to think that she has gained some peace about. Okay. I think that takes, we're about, I think we're well halfway in. So I, I think we're going to have a little break here um, and then we'll be right back. Let our sponsors say something and then we'll be right back with Jonathan and Simon Chin. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Oscar and Emmy-winning producers Jonathan and Simon Chin. Uh, The film is Tina. Uh, It's releasing on HBO and streaming on HBO Max from March 27th, drops March 28th in the UK on Sky Documentaries and Now TV, also available on Altitude Film. And there is a theatrical release. Just check your local listings, I think is what they might tell us to do. Um, so we're obviously been talking about Tina Turner. Uh, one thing, uh, just for me personally, re- uh, revelatory, and we are a UK-based uh, podcast, uh, I didn't realize she had such this uh, London connection that looms large. Uh, she basically escapes to London, doesn't she? She's not the only artist, you know, to, to have done that. Obviously, you know, famous artists such as Jimi Hendrix, you know, he couldn't make it happen in the U.S. and ended up getting launched in London. But, but a- ab- absolutely, she has a big London connection and I think felt free um, uh, in a certain way in London um, in a way that, that she didn't in, in, in the U.S. Um, for lots of reasons. Um, and I think at the time, London was just the right place for her creatively and emotionally. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, Simon, as, as our resident, full-time Londoner. Brit uh, resident, <laughs> if you want to you wanna sort of talk about that from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it has, it has kind of everything to do with the fact that, you know, she felt ultimately kind of somewhat rejected in the U.S. I mean, I just, isn't, isn't that often the story? The U.S. market mm. in terms of music is, an incredibly tough nut to crack. And I guess if you don't 
conform, you know, if you don't sort of fit a particular category. Uh, another film I made, uh, I produced was called Searching for Sugar Man, which yeah. you're aware of, and Rodriguez had the same problem, right? He couldn't, yeah. he just yeah. didn't fit. You know, he was a man outside of his time, ahead of his time, actually. And yeah. Tina arguably was the same. So I think, I think the UK market is, tends to be more, I don't know whether the word forgiving is quite the right, right word, maybe just a bit more adventurous, right? Yeah. A bit more accommodating yeah. of people who don't fit neatly into into boxes at that time i think that that's true i think i, I think that uh um yeah i think london was the right place for her and was, and, and obviously welcomed her with with open arms and is yeah. a big part of this, her successful career both both with ike and also as a solo artist i think that's as someone who grew up in the u.s and at that time i can tell you uh yeah it's very rigid or was very rigid in terms of radio uh where you could get played uh, across the different genres. I've always said I didn't appreciate pop music because I had a certain view. Pop music was like a dirty word in my mind until I came to the UK. And then I've kind of, I now appreciate what it is actually, I think. Um, and uh, I mean, you have that great sequence too with, uh, with about River Deep, Mountain High, which has been playing in my head all day long. And talking about going from uh, frying pan to the fire, of, you know, I turned it to Phil Spector, but still it's this uh, amazing I mean, amazing song, and it just flops as Kurt Loder. He's just, as I will agree with Kurt Loder, makes me ashamed of being an American in that sense, that that just didn't have an audience. I suppose actually there's, a, there's that section where, where Ike is actually explaining, probably with a, a little bit of, of, of schadenfreude, yeah. it was sort of slightly marginal yeah. in that recording, kicked out of the, the recording studio by Phil Spector, uh, yeah. turns out sort of describing why he felt, and analyzing why, why it didn't work. And I guess it's sort of more really what I'm saying, which is that yeah. fit into a box. And Tina, I mean, you described her as a pop, a pop artist. And yes, she, I guess that's how we remember her, but she was a black female, yeah. you know, singing rock. And yeah. that didn't quite compute, did it, for her? Uh, no and i think it's probably uh it's not not trying to make this personal but it's probably i did why i didn't appreciate her at the time i will say just to be honest i think it was just kind of mm. this doesn't compute this isn't you know uh when actually it makes obviously it makes more than perfect sense um um i mean let's if you don't mind i think a, a great film we could talk about tina turner all day um i highly uh, recommend people watch this film when it comes out but uh Whose idea was this to make this film? Do you just wake up one day and think, hey, you know, let's make a Tina Turner doc? I mean, how does this, how did this come about? Weirdly, a sort of opportunity that sort of presented itself, which is that I, I had actually met with uh, the producer of the Tina musical, who's called Tally Pellman. Okay. Uh, at a dinner for a kind of mutual friend. And she called me up kind of out of the blue sometime after asking whether we'd be interested in doing some short documentaries to sort of help them promote the musical, but she mm -hmm. didn't want to feel too promotional. So sort of behind the scenes, like three behind the scenes, five minute docs, and the money wasn't exciting. So I said, not something that we're yeah. really going to be that interested in other than as an opportunity to build a relationship with Tina and right. as an opportunity you know, if you're up for it, to help persuade her to do a feature documentary with us. So that was kind of the basis on which we did it. And by the way, we really enjoyed doing it. Um, we put one up, we have a great in-house director called Ed Perkins, who's now Oscar nominated. He was kicking around. So we put him on it and he did a, an amazing job. And um, I think Tina, Tina and Irwin, her husband, was, were quite impressed. And we you know, mm -hmm. got the opportunity to meet them and started talking and, you know, and Tally, you know, was as good as her word. She sort of actually went back and they were reticent. I have to say they weren't that excited about doing a feature darling. Um, but she, she really vouched for us. So I think, and they trust her. So that was, that was, um, that was that story. And uh, Tina and Erwin on, were on board from the beginning, were they? In, in a sense, well, in more than a sense, they are our partners on the film. The, 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 oh, yeah. The, 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 the proposition was always that we were going to do something that kind of 
aimed to be definitive, something I've never been done before with Tina's full participation. I know you have a working relationship with uh, Daniel Lindsay and TJ Martin, the directors, but when did you, you know, I, I don't think they've definitely, you know, not to categorize people, they didn't necessarily have done a music doc before, I don't know, but uh, when did you line them up and uh, decide to bring them onto the project? It was shortly after that, um, I think I think Simon actually met with them in London and and mentioned it to them. Um, and I think our thinking was, you know, we'd worked with them on a, on a film called LA 92 about the civil unrest in Los Angeles. And, and they had approached that material with, with sort of such a distinctive directorial point of view. And we, we had such a great experience with them working on that. I think in a weird way, our thinking was, we knew they would bring something interesting to it. And in, in a way we, we thought maybe they would be a more interesting choice than a director that had sort of made a lot of music docs, if you see what I mean, because yeah. the, the, we, we, we knew that the biggest challenge was, was to make a film that was going to tell a story that had been told. So it was very important to us to, to work with director, a director or directors in this case, that we felt confident above all else, we're going to do something interesting um, and not just follow the kind of yeah. music doc conventions um, yeah. too, too strictly. I think yeah. we knew with those guys, we just knew from our experience on LA 92 that they would literally not rest until mm -hmm. the film did something a bit different, right? And, and, and they're, they're incredible. I describe them as sort of craftsmen. They're kind of master craftsmen. Mm. You know, it is a bit with them like sort of hewing a really massive and slightly daunting piece of granite. Yeah. It takes long to have this process <laughs> and, and in a way you have to embrace the process with them and let them do their thing, which is chipping away at the granite one little piece at a time until suddenly, finally, you can kind of see, see the, the sculpture that they're trying to create. Mm. Yeah, it's a great it's a it's a great analogy and just to get a bit nerdy on the filmmaking side. Um <laughs> what Dan and TJ do now that it's such a great analogy, Simon, what Dan and TJ do that very, very few directors do is that they actually chisel away at the back of the statue that nobody sees because they need to do that as part of their process. They they that, that if you walked around to the back door of the process, you would see something that was really well crafted, even though nobody's going to see it because they're so exhaustive in their process. Most people just chip away at the thing that people are going to see, but they actually spend time and money chipping away, chipping away at the back of the sculpture. Just, just, to be clear here, just to be clear and to make a full confession, yeah. that as a producer, it's not a comfortable experience. I can imagine. <laughs> Maybe the third project we do with them we won't give them such a fucking hard time <laughs> yeah. and, and not delivering cuts on time. And just, just, we won't because I think we'll just have, we'll probably build a schedule that's, that's realistic. Yeah. And so just cut them a bit more slack. So cut them a bit more slack. Opportunity to apologize to Dan and <laughs> being a bit of a hard ass. <laughs> well, just let's uh, just in case our listeners don't know, uh, Dan and TJ are well. You all won Emmys on LA '92, and uh, they, they've won there an, an Oscar on Undefeated back in I think. Well, the film came out in 2011. So, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah I can... rem they're remarkable filmmakers for the reasons that we've explained. That they just they leave no stone unturned, you know, um, to the benefit of the film. So for those out there who want to work with Dan and TJ, just realize you're going to have to have budget for this, I think, and patience. And time. And, and time. time, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but speaking of these, I mean, as you say, they're crafting the story. So how did they, I mean, you know, it's, um, they could, you know, as you say, they're not going to, they didn't do something uh, cliche or traditional. I mean, they've, they've, they divide the film into these five parts and themes. Is that, uh, is that part of this creative process that you were watching happening? That that's... Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think the th thing that their entry point, and I think any good director needs a, an entry point, which, which with any luck sort of becomes a vision. I, I'm, I'm not a great believer that, you know, documentary directors sort of walk in with a vision. They, they walk in with a, 
a kernel that might kind of grow into a vision if, if you're lucky. Mm. Um, and their, their little kind of kernel was this sort of observation when they met Tina. The first thing that she said to them was like, why do you want to do another, you know, tell another, another story about me? And it's like, this hasn't this been done? It's like, I don't want to know, you know, I, I don't, you know, this kind of ambivalence. And I think there's a sort of paradox there, isn't there? There's a sort of paradox mm. of someone who's been defined by her story, but doesn't, doesn't, isn't, isn't comfortable with it. So, so we worked a lot on trying to sort of find, calibrate. I think we worked with them quite closely on trying to sort of calibrate that aspect of the film so that it felt, it felt like another layer, but it nonetheless felt organic to the film. Interestingly, you know, some, some, some similarities to the work that we did with them on LA92, but um, their process with this was, was to really get stuck into the archive. And I think, I think special mention has to go to um, Ben Piner, the co-producer who, who also did the archive for LA92, but, but they worked really closely with Ben um, and, and our other producing partner, Diane Becker. Um, and, and they sort of started with the archive as their entry point. Um, I mean, their entry point in terms of filmmaking process, not right. necessarily their vision, but they watched hundreds of hours of Tina Turner throughout her life. And, and I think that grounded them in some way, but it also raised lots of questions for them because you know one of the big challenges that they had that we all ended up having was what do you leave in and what do yeah, you yeah. take out of her story? We're talking about 80 years. Um, um, and that was a really big challenge for them was sort of understanding a framework that would help them decide what to leave in and what to take out. So obviously we watched a lot of quite long versions of the film, you know, that over time, um, you know, became more focused. But the, the archive was their starting point. Um, and I, I think the archive is very rich and very layered and I think brings a lot to the meaning of the film and 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 reveals Tina really well yeah. um you know because the interview was the interview was was short yeah. yeah there's material in there that that has genuinely never been seen before for yeah. sure you know there's actually the, the, the guys built a great relationship with the late wonderful Rhonda Graham who was sort of Tina's confidant close friend I think mm. touring manager tour manager at one point um and Rhonda has this amazing archive um mm. uh, a lot of photographs but, but I think some, really some super eight footage that had never been seen before amazing stuff uh, yeah and there's, there's stuff in there that we, we actually I don't know if you noticed but we there's 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 a kind of originally shot material actually not originally shot by us yeah. of, of inside Tina and Ike's house yeah hey um, and that was a bit of a discovery. That was that was a filmmaker that, that I think Jonathan came across, and I actually ended up meeting, um, who had made who had embarked on making a short film based on this this house that he discovered had been acquired by you know had been sold by Tina and Ike to a guy who basically not touched it, so yeah. completely intact. Uh, you know, the, the furnishings, everything. Um, so, and he discovered that this house was going to be demolished. He had 10 days to go mm -hmm. in there and film wow. it for posterity uh, and, 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 and finally fil filmed it being demolished. So we have this unique footage in our film of that house, which you can see if you look at some of the old archive, you can actually see is exactly well, the same yeah. furnishing. I think, I think, I think when HBO first saw the footage, they asked us how we recreated it so exactly. And we said, we didn't. It's the dentist that bought, that's the house that the dentist bought. And, um, and he completely preserved it, which is, you know, it's such a gift uh, for filmmakers to be able to inhabit a historic space like that. Um, but, you know, and, and again, thank you to Flavio who, who filmed that footage and provided it to the film. Um, it, 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 it's a great aspect. Um, 
of of of, of Tina's of life that that was yeah. luckily preserved now being demolished. No, that that's amazing. I was going to ask that because I I did notice that myself. I was like, wait a minute, that's not just some recreation. That is no, you know, because you you have that Super Eight. Most I think it's all in black and white, but I think most of it. But it, yeah, it's that, like that's wait actually a, early video. That's early yeah. video footage. Interestingly, yeah, yeah. Oh really? Oh well. That's so video footage of of the black and white stuff in her house. You know. The beginnings of video, video technology. <laughs> and then, but as you mentioned, I think uh, Simon mentioned earlier, you, you discovered these research tapes that both uh, Carl uh, Arrington and uh, Kurt Loder had, which uh, I think is brilliant be because I guess, as you said, you had a short, you know, you've brought her on camera uh, in the last couple of years, uh, but it was a relatively short interview, but you don't make her have to relive all that. Do okay. you? This is what I would call making a virtue out of a necessity. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tina was never up for, and this was part of, these were part of the ground rules that were established. She was never going to be up for sitting for a long interview, you yeah. know, partly because, you know, she, she, you can see in the film, she's pretty ambivalent at some level. <laughs> but also, I think, let's be clear, you know, it's traumatic for her. And I, I didn't think we were ever that up for, re-traumatizing her yeah. you know, I mm -hmm. want to do that so so then the question yeah the kind of big question was how does how does Tina's voice you know sort of where does where does Tina's voice come from so the, the search began at that point uh, I think we, we, were, we were aware that there were research interviews done for the, the I Tina book because I believe Tina and Irwin told us about them so that was a, an easy sort of pursuit, albeit that, you know, we need to persuade Kurt Loder. Um, and, but the Carl Arrington, I think, tapes were, were more of a discovery. Mm. Very much so a discovery. I think, we, you know, again, I think Ben Piner had a, had a big part of tracking him down and then finding out that he would sit for an interview. And then I remember the call saying, like, um, he, he recorded his interview with Tina and has them. I think at that point we were, we were, we were pretty excited and, you know, you, Simon's alluded to this, but you get to a Tina Turner in those tapes. I don't think anybody in the public has ever seen. I mean, the Kurt Loder stuff is great because you can hear the, the ice in the whiskey glasses. I mean, you can, you, you know, it's such an oral kind of um, audio kind of feast. Um, yeah. And you can hear them getting comfortable with each other. Mm. But that is a Tina Turner that is, I don't think has ever been scene and the, the rawness and kind of honesty that she talks about all kinds of aspects of her life. I mean, you know, not just Ike, but her relationship with her mother, which I think yeah. is also something that Dan and TJ really mind that, that, that is known about, but I think that they found a place for that story about, you know, Tina's very um, complicated relationship with her mother. But yeah, that, that Tina Turner, I don't think people in the public will, will, will ever see see again and I think this is the only example that, that we've seen of it so candid and so honest it's hard to believe we're starting to come uh, to the end of our time together um I just want to ask you a few questions we do uh we do a little segments as well where we um talk more sort of career questions for aspiring filmmakers and but I uh, just had a question we get, we're coming up on Oscars uh are coming out and Simon um I was going to ask you what does it take to make an Oscar winning doc but I think you would probably tell me that well, there's loads of great docs that never even get nominated for, you know, Oscars. So, I mean, what, and I'll direct this to both of you, but Simon, first, what does it make, what does it take to make a great doc, whether it's Oscar winning or not? Oh, that is such a difficult question. I mean, a great doc. I mean, there are many good docs, aren't there? But what, what yep. makes a great doc is usually the sort of coming together of an extraordinary and really surprising character. In my, in my, for, 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 for my money, with, a, with an extraordinary and surprising narrative, that those two things are not in, in themselves enough. It's the kind of, it's the sort of, what's the kind of other, the sort of little X factor that, that, that you know, that kind of connects those things to whatever's in the air at the time makes it current, you know? And I mean, you know, I referenced Search for Sugar Man, which, you know, the late, wonderful Malik Benjalal, the director of that film, who's, who sadly died a year after we won the Oscar, um, which was a whole other tragic story. But um, 
what was it about that film and that story that kind of connected with people? You know, I guess everyone has, has their theory, but I guess my, my, my sense is that we were sort of living through tough times. We were kind of coming, mm. coming out of a, of a, of a recession. Uh, economically, it was difficult. And, and here was this story about this guy who sort of had eschewed all the things that we regard as being mm. the typical measures for success, but sort of kept on doing his thing in an uncompromising way and success found him. And what a, what a, what a great story that was for, for those times, you know? So I think it is just something about what's in, it's, 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 what's in the, it's what's in the air, what's in the zeitgeist. It's so hugely important to what makes a great film. Great that's film. That's, that's very interesting. Jonathan, would you, would you have anything to add to that? I mean, you know, the obvious things, a, a great character, a great story in the hands of a visionary director who, who can access the things that Simon is talking about, can access sort of the pulse of the audience. Because, you know, you can make a great film that three years ago or three years in the future will win an Oscar, but it doesn't do it that year. In fact, nobody really pays attention to it. So it's, it's not an absolute, it's not a science. I can tell you that there is no formula um, to making uh, a, a, an award-winning film. Uh, there may not even be a formula to making a great film. I think there's a formula to making good films, absolutely. But, yeah. but that thing that Simon's talking about, which is that, yeah. that sort of, you know, Lamborghini seventh gear, um it's sometimes actually it's sometimes out of your control it sort of happens after the fact but there there, there are a set of things that have to be in place which is ideally the things you know good character good story visionary director and and probably some blood that had blood and sweat that probably has Mm -hmm. had had to have been shed i i do feel that the great films are almost always the really hard one to make. So if it's easy, that's not a good sign. Shout <laughs> out to the, to the film that is literally head and shoulders above, the documentary that's head and shoulders above every other documentary in the field this year is a film called Collective, which I have been, you know, assiduously trying to sort of support. Um, I said to Jonathan in a way that I rarely do my own films, because it's just unseemly, isn't it? We're going to get we're going to get a lot of a lot of angry emails from the other directors, <laughs> and filmmakers, but so be it. Send them, send them anyway. This film is is exceptional. I mean, whether it will win the Oscar, it should win, but it probably won't because it's mm-hmm. Romanian. Yeah. Because you know, frankly, it doesn't have quite the marketing budget that the Netflix film and the, the Amazon film have. Mm. So let's be clear that the the winning of Oscars is 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 not just about yeah. quality, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a let's give a shout out to Collective because I have heard um, I've actually have some experience with Eastern Europe, so I have I've I've heard about this and it's got an incredible. What I've been hearing is it sounds incredible. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, and I'm not even sure how you go about seeing it. But uh, uh, that's, a pro- that's a problem right there. That's the yeah. problem. That's the problem. Uh, and just to add. You know, it, it's also been nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, which is pretty historic. Um, so, you know, cl- clearly, it, clearly people who care about these things are recognizing it. But as Simon says, there is a machine that happens when it comes to award season that can bulldoze uh, a lot in its path. Um, uh, and we've been on both sides of that bulldozer. So uh, <laughs> um, we will see. We will see, but you know, you've just got to make, you've got to follow your heart. You know, I mean, I know that sounds cliched, but it can never be yeah, about, got, it can never be about the winning of awards, can it? Exactly. That's, no, it's no. got to be about the work and and finding the the, the film's rightful audience as well as a producer. That's that's mm-hmm. important too. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the, the awards process is a crapshoot. It's yeah. the biggest crapshoot there is actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't get too sort of sucked into it mm-hmm. I, I was going to ask you about advice for young document makers but i think you've already just given it i mean i think you've just got to be it's, i could say this about a lot of careers couldn't you you just have to have passion about what you're what you're doing and just try to do it to the yeah. best of your ability and what falls out from that you have to look critically at whether 
the story that you want to tell has legs. Um, and, and, you know, so you, 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 there's that aspect too, you know, that, that in terms of what we see with younger directors is, um, yeah, just having a bit of, a bit of ability to look critically at what you're doing is, is important mm -hmm. too, along with the passion and belief that everything you're doing is worthwhile. Yeah. I guess what Simon is pointing to is that, yeah, some, sometimes some great work, you know, sort of gets a little buried and, and, yeah. you know, we all have a responsibility to try and, you know, dig some of it up and, and say, guys, pay attention to this. Um, because, um, you know, the great, great art is hard to make. And when it does get made, it should be recognized one way or the other. Speaking of great art, what's next for the both of you with Lightbox films? What's, uh, what's, what can we look forward to, uh, coming from you two? The one film that, that, um, we're in the middle of making that has been announced is, is the very first theatrical film about, um, uh, the, uh, the life but, and also death of Princess Diana um, that's being directed by Ed Perkins, who we mentioned before. Mm. Um, well-trodden story, but, but just to be clear about it, we're, we're, we're actually following the same approach with that film that we did with LA92 and telling it exclusively using archive material, i.e. no underlying interviews. So the kind of experience of watching it will feel like the story is sort of unfolding in the present albeit that the filmmaking hopefully will nudge the audience to some, some areas where there is real present day resonance of which let's, let's be honest, there's, there's a huge abundance in the, in yeah. the mm -hmm. We also um, fortunate enough to produce some really exciting uh, limited series um, uh, in, in the music space, also the true crime space, um, starting to, starting to, uh, do a bit more in the sports um, mm -hmm. arena. And again, just looking for great characters, great stories and filmmakers, um, you know, with a really distinctive point of view that, 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 that those are always a little non-negotiable for us. And then the rest, you know, we hope for the best. Okay. Hey, well, uh, as, as a, as a fan of your work, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for making these films ones you've made previously and the ones you're about to make. Uh, so um, I just want to, uh, yeah, just uh, thank you both, uh, Jonathan and Simon. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having us. So just want to say thank you again to uh, Jonathan and Simon Chin, the producers of Tina, uh, releasing in the States on HBO and streaming on HBO Max on March 27th. Drops March 28th in the UK on Sky Documentaries and Now TV. Also available on Altitude.film. And it's got a theatrical re release uh, worldwide. And if you have any questions regarding how you can become a documentary producer, like Simon and Jonathan Chin, or other roles in the industry, I recommend you check out careersinfilm.com to learn more about careers in the film industry. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our engineer, Freddie Besbrode, and the rest of the team at This Is Distorted Studios here in Leeds, England. And a big thanks, as always, to Nevin Apaunovich, podcast manager, who ensures we continue getting such great guests like Simon and Jonathan onto the show. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.